Hello, and welcome to the FTI Cybersecurities podcast series, The Expert Briefing. My name is Ken Jones, and I'm the Senior Managing Director in the Risk and Investigations Practice here at FTI Consulting. Throughout this podcast series, FTI experts will discuss the latest issues and trends impacting the world of cybersecurity right now. And today's conversation is centered around reopening with care. Today, I'm joined by my colleagues, Jordan Ray Kelly, Elizabeth Cholis, and Lisa O'Connor. Hello, I'm Jordan Ray Kelly. I'm a Senior Managing Director and I'm Head of Cybersecurity for the Americas based out of Washington, DC. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Cholis and I'm a Managing Director on the Strategic Communications Team based in New York City. Hi, I'm Lisa O'Connor and I'm a Senior Managing Director for the Healthcare Operations Team based out of Boston. To begin our discussion today, um, the first question is, as restrictions are lifted, how do we tackle these new challenges? Firstly, I wanna speak about cyber readiness. How do we ensure a seamless transition back to the business? Well, it's an interesting thought because you consider when this pandemic began and for the United States that was earlier this year around March, we all became very focused on the cybersecurity of the remote workforce. And I don't think a lot of time and energy was spent thinking about how we could make sure that when we did make the transition back to work or back to the office or back to school and what all those challenges would be, would there still be cyber and digital challenges? And how would we begin to integrate remote work environments with back to school, back to in-person work environments? And so I think that when we talk about what these new challenges are, part of it is just a bit of imagination that we have to consider what are going to be the different configurations that are going to make these returning and reopening environments successful. So thinking about it from a cyber readiness perspective, many of the challenges that persisted in a remote work environment are going to continue because many organizations are opting for a hybrid model where there are a number of people still in the remote workforce. So I think organizations really need to think about what they can put in place to best join their remote and in-person workers to provide them a seamless experience. And I think that the ways to do that are only just now beginning to be explored. Jordan, I'm wondering as folks are reacting to and needing to set up these cyber or remote workforce endeavors and are probably largely focused on a new operational system to work in, how their workers do it, set up equipment, et cetera. What about things like quality control or looking, looking back a little bit to make sure these processes work? Do you think businesses have thought much about that? Is there risk involved as it relates to that? Absolutely. I think that there's definitely risk involved and I don't know how much time and investment organizations have had to look at that review period um, to really test these things out, right? There have been a lot of challenges that have driven organizations to make decisions uh, on a timeline that might not be ideal for them, right? Whether that's the back to school schedule and, or, and, and work organizations that have nothing to do with school are making decisions so they can accommodate parents and others in the workplace whose schedules are driven by the, those school opportunities. So I think that there is going to be a lot of time where there will, a review would be very helpful, but there's probably not time. So I think a lot of it boils down to uh, people figuring it out as they go, which is not ideal and is certainly going to open the door for challenges and vulnerabilities. And part of it has to do with how we're out there talking about these challenges with, with workers and with stakeholders and consumers. And I think you know, it's really helpful to think about how we've been able to share that information with our clients to help them communicate to all of their stakeholders the decisions that they're making and why they're making them 
but in terms of that time for a review period, it's, it's very limited. You know, another piece of this, Jordan, I know you've dealt with so many clients in, in crisis situations and, and the rest of us here have, have done the same and done it inside industry as well. And we all expect a tremendous effort is required during a crisis incident. But can you speak to the level of effort that's necessary after the initial threat is over? Some say the remediation effort is even harder than dealing with the crisis. I think that's true, that the remediation effort is often the part that kind of can get forgotten, right? People deal with the immediate event of a crisis, and they don't think about the long-term effects. So I think it's definitely true that those are going to come up often in a crisis and not be front of mind. I think we're seeing that now, particularly with this time frame. As we sit here talking today, we're right on the cusp of organizations rolling back to school and we're reading headlines. And I know this group here, we've been talking on a daily basis about the headlines of different organizations that are having to change their reopening plans on a minute by minute, day by day basis. And so those decisions, those immediate decisions are certainly presenting them with challenges, but the long-term effects of those, not just from the perspective of how, how their consumers and stakeholders will react, but I'm sure there will be litigation concerns and other impacts that they haven't even began to consider. And I know Elizabeth has dealt with this in a number of different scenarios too, so I'd love to hear her views on that as well. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point. You know, you need to have plans in place. That's an absolute, but you also have to be nimble and be able to respond to the situation. So it's really, really twofold that you, you do the planning, but then you make sure you have the resources in place to respond to how the scenarios are shifting. You know, the, we, we talked about uh, litigation. Um, so these remediation plans are, are very difficult. Um, and, and at the same time, you, as Jordan said, you might be dealing with litigation. You could also be dealing with financial restructuring uh, because COVID, other crises can have a huge financial impact. So you're trying to get back to, uh, back to normal uh, when you're dealing with financial distress, when you're dealing with litigation, uh, when you're dealing with all the health and safety issues. And, and that's why I say the, uh, you know, the back to normal plan can be just as difficult. Agree. I think impacts to workforce and the overall health is the background of all of this, right? What do we, we don't, there's so much we don't understand about this from a health standpoint. And so there's a lot to anticipate and plan for. And those impacts are maybe yet to come, right? Many even months uh, outside of the virus itself and its impact on our current workforce. So all those things, I think this makes this one of the most complex things uh, we can all face in this time frame. So I think we've already started to talk about things that are much broader than the cyber readiness aspect, but I think that the physical readiness aspect is equally, if not more important. Ken, what are you thinking about as you're talking to clients about what advice they need to consider as they're planning for in-person interaction from a physical readiness perspective? Well, clearly, the first thing that everyone is looking at is, uh, is, is health and safety, obviously. Um, and we have, obviously, the uh, you know, federal and, and state and sometimes uh, city guidelines. Um, I know, Jordan, you and I have worked uh, specifically with, with universities, um, and, they, and they have uh, different boards and different accreditation organizations that deal with, with physical and, and safety issues. I think one of the things that's, that's beneficial, um, and we find this in other areas of, of crisis, is uh, peer comparisons. 
you know, when we deal in financial crime, you know, the, the heads of fraud risk are constantly talking about the new threats and, and they share this even across competitors. Uh, Jordan, you, you and, and Elizabeth and Lisa and I have been working, as I said, in, uh, in, in higher education and, and helping them with some reopen plans. And the, the peer comparisons there are very, very important. You know, what are you doing with housing? What are you doing with isolation? What are you doing with, uh, you know, with your, your metrics for reacting to positive cases? Um, so one of the areas is, you know, making people safe. And the, another area is making uh, customers, employees, students feel safe letting them understand the precautions that you put in place, letting them understand that you understand the guidelines. And, and this current uh, situation with COVID and future situations, it's very difficult uh, for some non-technical uh, health experts that are running organizations to get up to speed quickly on it. So I think that's, that's a critical factor as well. One of the things is really being able to enforce guidelines. You know, you're, we're dealing with different populations, different employees, uh, different uh, environments, you know, large cities, small towns, rural areas. Um, how can you control populations? And, and sometimes you can't. The, the best thing that you can do is provide recommended areas, activities to avoid, um, you know, guidance on, you know, distancing. Uh, but a lot of times you can only make recommendations. Uh, monitoring those, you know, adherence to those recommendations is something that you can do. Um, are people wearing masks? Are people uh, social distancing? Are people frequenting places that are crowded? Um, you know, and, and you can monitor that because that might be an indicator of, of future problems. Yeah, and I think that's a great point, Ken. And you know, it, it comes, you know, it brings to mind the fact that you can plan, you can have all these measures in place to make sure people are safe, but you can't always factor in human behavior. And so, you know, how do you, how do you get ready to deal with the contingencies that will come up for, you know, what these different populations are doing and how are you going to try to control human behavior? And I think that's what we're all seeing when we're, we're working with these academic institutions and they're trying to come back and, you know, we're seeing every day the challenges that they're facing because that human behavior factor is, you know, that's the X factor that they can't really control. I would say, you know, we're hearing from clients as well and we're seeing this play out in education and many other businesses, which is how do we help the folks who work in these businesses, whether they're schools and teachers, whether they're folks delivering services in some way, feel safe so they're comfortable coming back to work so businesses can actually restart their efforts. And I think that challenge is tremendous because much of that we like to think is grounded in sort of science and data and there's just so much we don't know. And I think the other part of this is there's a lot of it tied up in emotion and perception too. And so how do we bridge the gap for folks and create truly, right, as, as much science as we have, a safe environment for folks to function in and the kind of support they need to feel comfortable so things can in some ways get back to as normal as is possible. Um, I think we all know there are lots of uh, potential outcomes from continuing to have to shift our, the way we do things um, in a more permanent fashion. 
So Lisa, I think that's, that's, you brought up an excellent point there. You know, the physical setup of your business needs to be functional. It needs to meet the safety standards, but also facilitate the interaction necessary to conduct business. And that goes back to the point I think we made earlier. Uh, peer comparisons are very, very helpful. And, and it's helpful to us when, when we're dealing industry to industry to really research and find out some of those best practices for specific industries, you know, for restaurants, for higher education, for, you know, industrial manufacturing, for all those different industries. Um, there are a lot of smart people out there. There are a lot of good ideas. There are a lot of ways to be able to run your business, but stay within the guidelines. And, and that sharing of information is valuable. Next, let's talk about how we respond rapidly to new developments and planning for shifting scenarios, which is crucial. How can organizations improve their crisis preparedness and at the same time be ready to react to those new scenarios that pop up? Well, Ken, you know, one thing that we're doing so much with clients these days are tabletop exercises. And, you know, that really tests the plan you have in place, but it also tests the decision-making process. It makes people think about what roles they need to play, who is the ultimate decision maker for different types of decisions. And it makes, you know, an executive committee and a management team really work together um, and, and think through the difficult scenarios um, you know, in this very complex environment. And so we're finding those types of exercises are the most useful way right now to keep a team nimble and to make sure that the process that they're going through is sound because we simply can't plan for every contingency or every outcome in an environment like this. Elizabeth, what we're seeing in our healthcare clients, many of them to complement what you're saying in terms of tabletop exercises or what we call practice for folks is doing daily or even more frequent than that situational awareness briefings. So teams, executive teams getting together and running a standard sort of what's happening in my organization or in the areas I'm responsible for clearly defined metrics or things that we know are going to influence how we would think about either our response or what's happening around us or a potential need to mobilize differently. And healthcare organizations are getting really good at this sort of huddle mentality or sort of situational awareness that many other industries have done phenomenal work in over time. But I think it's a, it's a great way to then augment or figure out what the triggers are to then say, we better practice this. We better get to exercise because things indicators are that we're, things are moving in the wrong direction are going to move us to have to address X or Y. Yeah, well, I like that because, you know, sometimes I think organizations see exercises, tabletops, simulations as, you know, some big test and something that we need to plan three months out. And we're just, we don't have that kind of time. So I love that adaptation of the, the exercise, the, the test, the situational awareness to a daily exercise um, because it has it has to be daily in a situation you know with with reopening and all of the different concerns it's been very effective and I think you know also has a lot of other added benefits in terms of organizational culture and communication so it's been a positive thing that we've seen I mean hopefully it's something that translates beyond the current situation and becomes more a part of their their daily life and their culture and and how they communicate and work together absolutely 
I'll, I'll give you a couple real life examples, I, I think, of why that uh, adaptation in, uh, in the exercises is important. You know, going back to the 9-11 terror attacks and one month later, the, the mailing of anthrax and a number of deaths that occurred, uh, you know, one thing we learned during those crises is that um, things change. What you think are factual changes and uh, the basis for your decisions uh, are, you know, it's important to document those things because uh, as an incident unfolds, um, You'll, you'll find that you're making decisions based on less than perfect information. And, and that goes back to the, the practice and thinking on your feet and the exercise when, you, when curveballs come your way. Uh, but it's also important to document what you knew at the time, why you made the decisions that you made. Uh, you know, the, the, the anthrax mailings, the, the COVID situation, um, these are health and science issues that are unfolding and changing as, as time goes on. So one of the things is really being able to make the best decisions possible with less than perfect information, uh, work as a team, think on your feet, um, and try not to be too prescriptive. Um, expect that unexpected. And, and that's why we practice these scenarios. That's why they're important. And, it, and it's critical for your crisis management team to have that practice of decision-making and thinking on your feet. Another thing to think about that we often think is we're helping our clients test out their scenarios in a digital environment is making decisions about who the decision makers will be. And that might sound a little bit silly, but if you consider the fact that often when we bring challenges to organizations to run through these tabletop scenarios, we find that some of the most critical things that are left undecided are who will be able to make the call if big changes have to be made. Um, so I think that that's really important for organizations to best understand, is it going to be your CEO, your president? Is it going to be a board? Have you established a committee? Who will be the one that when you have to make a tough call, and there are obviously tough calls that are already being made on a daily basis, um, who will have that authority? And so I think that's a consideration that extends well outside of just the cybersecurity environment to all of the people who are going to be facing these challenges. Thanks, panel. This has been a very good discussion. I appreciate uh, the input and the different perspectives. The last question that I want to pose to you is, what are the challenges within the healthcare industry right now, given the situation? So, Ken, I think the challenges in healthcare organizations are multifold. I think first and foremost, folks are concerned about the potential of second surges. And in some areas, I guess, depending on your definition of surge, we are seeing sort of an up and down set of, of volume and impact of the virus regionally in particular areas. So how are, how are you gonna, how are healthcare organizations gonna respond to that? Do they have enough folks um, in some settings, the, in the original surge, elective volumes were largely turned off in many organizations. In some places, that volume's been turned back on. And so now the potential for resurgence um, makes it even more complicated for organizations. So I think first and foremost, hospitals and health systems, their primary goal is provision of care to the folks they serve, so they want to be able to do it. I think second is in the setting of then decreased elective surgeries and procedures and patients with their own trepidation about coming for care they may not see as anything but emergent has impact, impacted healthcare organizations financially pretty substantively. 
And so how do they respond to those financial pressures while needing to still respond to the provision of care requirements they have for their communities? So those are big and active concerns for, I would say, largely all of our clients. And then the uncertainty of resetting what the future looks like for them. What do volumes look like? Is this going to change forever what elective case volumes look like? Is this going to change forever consumer approaches to healthcare? What do we think is going to happen here? And I think those concerns are real and there's lots of modeling going out there in healthcare organizations who are who are budgeting quarterly instead of annually now, things that they're needing to do in order to plan for and responsibly govern their organizations. And then I think one of the other big, big things, and this is happening everywhere, not just in healthcare, but the impact on the workforce of this virus has been pretty significant. And we've seen our healthcare workers really rally and do the things they've needed to do to care for all of us um, and our families but that impact is going is starting to show itself with folks exiting the profession, people deciding to retire when maybe they would have not done that yet, um, post-traumatic stress that maybe we haven't even really seen yet, um, the impact of labor unions and their thought processes on future negotiations and other things, all those things really impacting how healthcare leadership is having to shift their priorities and, um, make sure that they can address these things head on. One, one of the questions that I've had is, how does an executive committee with, without the healthcare expertise make decisions when, when they're, they're not experts in the field? You know, I think what's, that's very challenging. I would say first is, you know, there are resources for non-healthcare experts. And I think the CDC has done a decent job at um, making less complex the guidance in these areas. So using the CDC and other places like that as, a, as the place we go to for at least that healthcare expert or best information is important for non-healthcare executives. Um, so I think that that is a big opportunity for folks to think through that. And then second, I think perhaps being more open to global conversations as an internal team of leaders um, is gonna be important. Vetting concerns, really exploring what folks have on their mind will help them create more informed decisions. Um, and in the, if I think we keep in mind our staff and our customers, no matter what business we're in, those things will take us on, down the right path largely. So one of the other things I think healthcare organizations are, are trying to figure out and have been pretty nimble in the direct impact of COVID is, is implementing telehealth strategies. Those telehealth strategies have been useful in folks being able to access care, certainly in a timely basis while keeping everyone safe. I think the real question in healthcare is, is that gonna grow? Is it gonna stick as part of how we deliver services more routinely and perhaps at larger scale? And that has implications around healthcare privacy, certainly, and um, I'm wondering, Jordan, what you think of that from a cyber standpoint? You know, health, the healthcare industry has always really been on the cutting edge when it comes to cybersecurity, but interestingly, it took this event to push us to a place where telehealth was so readily used and so widely accepted. Uh, my time in the US government, that was a topic that we often discussed thinking about how we were going to make that more available to Americans. 
And it wasn't really until the last six months where we've seen some changes, even at the government level, that have made that a reality. So I think that the planning in place to make sure that the adequate protections for the safety and security and privacy of data are always there in the healthcare sector, but there's probably some catching up that needs to happen. And so I think that we will definitely see that um, into the future. And I think that those options, once they've been made available to people, people are gonna wanna continue to pursue them. But I think another consideration you have to think about when it comes to the healthcare industry and cybersecurity, uh, you probably have seen the headlines about the targeting of the companies that are on the forefront of some of the things that we need now and that we'll need in the future. So the companies that are behind some of the major vaccine initiatives are being targeted for their intellectual property. And of course, that's not something that we're surprised to see, but I think that it's a challenge that shows to us that healthcare organizations, as they're evolving in the ways that you've described, Lisa, to meet the coming and com coming needs of the pandemic, um, they're gonna continue to be very attractive targets and they're gonna have to be thinking about cybersecurity in the midst of the 1,000 other things that they're thinking about. So they're really just a good example uh, for all organizations of the fact that the cybersecurity risks that they face never go away and that they continue to change and evolve in this pandemic in such a way that organizations have to put a priority on making sure that all of their digital assets are safe. We've also been talking about you know, this period of time where people have not been taking advantage of routine health care and elective procedures. Um, Lisa, I'd be curious to know um, because of that gap in time um, and what people have not been doing, they, what they would have normally been doing during that time, but also, you know, the introduction of more telehealth and the way possibly our healthcare is changing as a result of this, what do you think the long-term impact on public health is? So I think uh, I go back and forth on this to some degree, because I will say that what we know about U.S. healthcare is there's a fair amount of utilization of services that may largely be unnecessary, right? So we know, so we know that, right? The U.S. spends more dollars per capita on healthcare, and in many instances, in many examples, our outcomes are not largely better than most. So we have sort of that as the background. Secondarily, however, I think that we will see that folks, that those delays in potential diagnoses where we could have had mitigation. Um, I think about things, basic things like mammography for women, right? When is that, you know, women don't, it's not highest on everybody's list to want to go do it anyway. And now there's even more of a reason to say, oh, I'll wait, I'll wait, I'll wait. Those are the kinds of things that I think are obviously concerning, right? We never want to have delays in things that are um, things we want to know about early on, I think are critically important. I think the other thing that's going to be really interesting that's going to evolve and it has its own set of controversies is as vaccine becomes available, how are we as a nation going to think about that? Because we've you know, vaccination and the thoughts around vaccination have evolved in this country a lot over the years. And how we communicate and think about that, I think, is just going to be interesting. In Massachusetts, uh, they just announced mandating flu vaccine for kids to go back to school. And so it's just interesting that you know, that whole thing, I think, is going to play out pretty significantly. And that's about preventative health. And it's something we've never really been good at. And so I think all of these things are going to come to head as we look at and begin to study the longer term impact 
on what this has done to our health globally. We know instantly who's died and had un unfortunate outcomes related to this virus. We don't know yet what the future outcomes are going to be. So I'd like to thank my colleagues for joining me today. So, so thank you, Jordan and Elizabeth and, and Lisa. Remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you don't miss out on future episodes. And if you'd like to find out more about what we do here at FTI Cybersecurity, please reach out to me or anybody of today's guests via the FTI website. Mm -hmm.